are listening to Doing Law Differently. Join me, Lucy Dickens, as I explore how the world's most progressive legal service providers are doing law differently. Hi everyone, Lucy here. Welcome back to the Doing Law Differently podcast. Today I'm joined by John Farron, workplace and employment lawyer and co-founder of Farron McRae Workplace Lawyers and Consultants. John has been a big supporter of the Doing Law Differently podcast for quite some time, and I really loved getting to know him and learn more about his business in this interview. John co-founded Farrah McRae Workplace Lawyers and Consultants with his wife, Alison. John handles the legal arm of the business, representing employers and employees before courts and tribunals, while Alison leads the workplace investigation arm. I have a really interesting talk to John, starting with why he left life at the bar to establish his business and a discussion about whether the rules that govern barristers are outdated for the modern practice of law. We also talk about the complementary skills that he and Alison both bring to the business. And yes, I ask all about what it's like to work and live with your partner. And there's also some talk about technology, when it's good and when it's not so good, and why those robots won't replace us just yet. If you enjoy the episode, I'd love you to share it and let others know. It's the best way to spread the word about the podcast and to introduce these wonderful guests to more people. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hi, Lucy. It's wonderful to be here with you. Yeah, thank you. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today and learning more about your business. You've been a big supporter of the podcast for quite some time and I wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you because I do appreciate that you are always engaging in conversations with me and other listeners and sharing the episodes and I appreciate that. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, as I said to you before, it's it's hard to find good quality Australian content on the podcast. And so I'm always happy to support the podcasters that are producing that sort of material. And there's more of them starting to come out now, so it's nice to be able to get a bit more local content, which is definitely a good thing. Yeah, it is. Now, I want to start with your somewhat of a career change, I guess. You used to be a barrister at the Queensland Private Bar, and then you gave that up to co-found Farron McRae. I'm interested to understand that decision. So what led you to that change? Look, I really do very much enjoy advocacy, tribunal and court advocacy. But in Queensland, as you may or may not know, we still are one of the few states that have a split profession. You're either admitted and hold a practising certificate as a barrister or as a solicitor. So under the barrister's rules, there are a number of restrictions on what is barrister's work, you know, in inverted commas. So in the area that I specialise in, which is in employment and workplace law, I was finding increasingly a couple of things. Firstly, because employment disputes don't often involve large amounts of money, it was becoming increasingly difficult to justify to clients engagement of both solicitor and counsel Mm -hmm. in terms of costs. More and more, solicitors were doing their own advocacy, particularly in the tribunals. Then the other factor was that increasingly I was getting referrals and contacts for work but the work involved uh, tasks that barristers are prohibited from undertaking. So obviously, when you first get contacted by an employee or an employer, often there needs to be correspondence drafted and sent on behalf of the client, which barristers in Queensland are prohibited to doing under their own name. Um, It was just things like that where I was finding I wasn't actually able to service the clients who wanted to engage me, particularly directly, um, although barristers in Queensland can accept direct briefs without instructing solicitor and I was becoming frustrated by that 
there was also another factor, which is that the whole time I was at the bar, I also had a consulting business that I had before I went to the bar, which specialised in undertaking consultant workplace investigations and mediation work. And also a, a year or so before we founded Farron McRae Workplace Lawyers and Consultants, my wife had joined me in that business as a specialist investigator. So essentially, the reason to start the law firm was a combination of factors, which was to essentially combine my legal practice with the consulting business. And then obviously, instead of my wife, Alison, being an employee of mine in the consulting business, she joined the new practice as a non-legal practitioner director. So I suppose that is one of the key things that, in terms of your podcast, that makes us different from a lot of other law firms, is that we are an incorporated legal practice that offers both legal services and also non-legal consulting services. And that's definitely a theme that I want to pick up on with you. But before we dive into that, I just want to explore this split profession a little bit in terms of the split between barristers and solicitors. And I know that that's the case where you are. Lines are much more blurred over in Western Australia. Do you think that some of those regulations around what barristers can and can't do are outdated? Or do you think that they're still relevant for the modern profession? That's a really good question. It's a question that is often debated. I think it is to some degree. It's outdated in terms of the commerciality of, for many people, of running a practice at the bar. Um, And particularly if you work in specialties of areas that, as I said before, uh, don't involve disputes over large amounts of money. Um, when you can justify both solicitor and counsel. Now, I don't disagree with the idea of the benefit of an independent bar. I think in terms of the administration of justice, that there are many strong and cogent arguments for retaining that. But certainly I know that it does create a lot of problems in terms of just the in the practical commerciality of running a practice. There are other difficulties, of course. For example, a barrister can not practice in partnership with any other legal practitioner. They can't be a director of an incorporated legal practice. So essentially, barristers in Queensland are self-employed sole traders. So another difficulty for, for example, for me and my family is that there is no survivorship. Uh, So Mm -hmm. if I was to die, my legal practice dies with me, whereas with the incorporated legal practice, that can continue on with all the benefits of survivorship that you have with an incorporated entity. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of other commercial advantages to having that sort of structure as well. So that is a... Most of the difficulties I had with the separation of the profession in Queensland were not philosophical difficulties. They were more practical and commercial difficulties. Yeah, which comes into play when you start to run a more modern legal practice because when you're practising law in the traditional way, those things don't tend to matter. People are selling their time. It is personal expertise that people want to engage you for. And in that way, it doesn't matter if a barrister is a sole practitioner because it's that individual person who you want to engage. But when you start to operate more as a modern business, that's when these these kind of rules and regulations start to break down and provide barriers to, well, I mean, exactly as you experienced, they were barriers to you running your business in the way that you wanted to. Yeah, and, and look, um, I know quite a few barristers that enjoy the fact that at the bar you 
don't have to deal very much with the clients. Yeah, you have an instructing yeah. solicitor between you and the client. Now, that's all very well for those people, but I actually really like dealing with the clients. And as I said, I had increasingly had clients approaching me directly by referral and reputation. And in many cases, I was having to turn them away and say, well, look, I, I really can't help you in the way you need to be helped. So then I was increasingly referring them to uh, colleagues in the solicitor's side of the profession who I knew I could trust to uh, take care of those people. Mm. Let's talk about your business then, McFerrin Ray Workplace Lawyers and Consultants. Now you've mentioned that you offer legal and consulting services, but just tell me more generally about what kind of work it is that you do. What services do you offer? Sure. Well, on the legal side, I'm the legal practitioner director. It's just the two of us. So it's just Alison and myself at the moment. That, that might change in the future. But for the time being, it's the two of us. So I'm the legal practitioner director and I provide all of the legal services. And so that is the uh, typical services of a specialist employment workplace lawyer. I do advice work, drafting, litigation in terms of things like unfair dismissal and general protections claims, primarily in the Fair Work Commission and the Federal Circuit Court and Federal Court, that type of thing. Obviously, with my background, I rarely have to instruct counsel. I do most of the advocacy work myself, which does deliver cost savings to the client. There's no doubt about that. And they are dealing directly with their advocate as well. So that's mostly the employment law work I do. I tend to have a fair bit of specialty in or subspecialties, you might call it, in the areas of discipline and performance management and dismissal because of my history as a workplace investigator as well as advising upon workplace investigations and reviewing them that have been done by other people too. Now, in terms of the consulting work, the consulting work basically um, is in three areas and both um, myself and Alison uh, work in these areas and that is so independent workplace investigations We do a lot of work here in Queensland for the state government entities because we're on the standing offer arrangement for the Queensland state government for workplace investigations. And they tend to be, we tend to do very complex end uh, investigations. So referrals of allegations of corrupt conduct from the Crime and Corruption Commission, complex bullying and harassment and sexual harassment claims and that type of thing. The next area of consulting work that we engage in is workplace mediation. And finally, we do the sort of general management sort of slash policy slash uh, workplace culture reviews. But we take a bit of a different perspective and bring a different skill set to that sort of work than maybe your typical sort of EYs and and those sort of consulting firms in that both Alison and I are experienced uh, sort of forensic workplace investigators. So we tend to rely very heavily on the interviewing of participants in the workplace to underpin the sorts of findings we're making. So even though in that sort of consulting work, we're not doing an investigation per se, we are using a lot of the same forensic skills for the gathering of material to be the foundation of our um, findings and recommendations. So that's the sort of the consulting work. And is that approach that you've just described, is that different to the traditional, how that would traditionally be done? Look, it is in many respects. A lot of traditional management consulting firms rely on, certainly on some interviewing, sort of focus group type activities. But in my experience, the techniques that are used by general management consultants are reasonably superficial in terms of interviewing style and technique. 
And the other thing too is that a lot of management firms rely on the use of proprietary tools, so 360-degree reviews and personality testing and those types of um, tools, and and we basically don't use that type Mm. of material. We rely essentially on talking to people, talking to the people who are in the workplace, gathering their views in a sophisticated and meaningful way and then producing that information through the lens of our experience in human resource management, industrial relations and management generally to hopefully produce pragmatic results for the client that can actually be implemented rather than just chucked up on a uh, shelf and uh, forgotten about. Mm, Rather than just a report, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of reports gathering dust out there and not produce. In fact, it's one of the big things we've got to try to overcome when you go into a workplace is often people have seen this before. They've seen consultants come in, they've seen them do stuff, they've heard there's been a report produced and then nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that's really not what we're about in terms of the clients we want to work with and, and what we want to help them produce. I must admit, I love psychometric testing. I will do any test out there that tries to analyze me and tell me what I'm all about. I find them fascinating. But I love the simplicity of your approach, which is that, hey, we're just humans. We're just going to talk to people and then use this wealth of experience and background knowledge and everything that you and Alison have both, all your experience, you can then use that to interpret the conversations that you have and provide really practical solutions and suggestions. What's Alison's background. Is she a legal practitioner? No, she's not. Her um, tertiary studies were actually in accounting and finance. In fact, I met her many years ago when she she was born and raised in Tasmania. And I met her many, many years ago where she came up as a graduate and worked in the Queensland Treasury Department while I was there. And as it turned out, she worked in my area for four months, I think, as one of her, her rotations while I was in the employee relations area there. She went back to Tasmania after she finished that um, stint with Treasury and she fell into human resources and employee relations work primarily with the Department of Education in Tasmania before um, a number of years, 10 years later, coming up to Brisbane to live um, permanently. So, yes, that's uh, her background is in that area. She certainly has spent a lot of time in the education field, so um, Education Tasmania originally, and then when she came to Queensland, she worked for Independent Schools Queensland, which is the peak body for uh, non-Catholic, essentially private schools. In, she worked in various advisory roles there, as well as working at a national uh, peak level for the implementation of the NAPLAN online program that's been working, that's been worked on for a number of years now. So she's also worked as an investigator extensively in the workplace, but she also has a very broad experience, particularly in the education sector, in terms of various management and advisory roles. But uh, I think it's probably her uh, training in finance and accounting as well as her personality, that leads her to take a very forensic approach um, to the way she manages and undertakes her investigations. Yeah, that leads nicely into the question I was thinking of as you were explaining a bit about Alison's background, which is that I know you've, you mentioned that you had the consulting business while you were at the bar, so that's not something that's necessarily brand new. But it sounds like there's that multidisciplinary approach with both of your backgrounds really complement each other and and I'm interested to understand how they have affected your practice of law by having Alison with her experience in other industries. 
it probably hasn't affected my practice of law in the sense that I obviously have all of the professional obligations of a lawyer in private practice in terms of maintaining confidentiality of my files and my client's work. So there is actually some divide there in the sense that Alison is not a member of the legal practice side of the firm. So I still practice, essentially what I'm trying to say is I still practice quite independently in terms of the legal work that I do. So I don't think it's probably changed that. But what about all the skills and the experience and just the way that you approach the consulting? Has that affected the way that you then deal with your clients on the legal side of the business? It's probably actually the other way around in terms of how my legal training has affected the consulting work and particularly the um, investigations work. And workplace investigators abound. There is a lot of people out there offering workplace investigation services. And and I see a lot of their work because I'm engaged quite often by clients, um, either employers or employees, um, to review investigations uh, and then provide advice and representation. And What I see is frequently a very simplistic and superficial approach taken to that work. And so I think it's actually the legal training, for example, the ability to be able to conduct interviews, factual interviews with people on a a sophisticated basis that is more likely to produce the sort of evidence that underpins findings in relation to matters that are often quite difficult, so unwitnessed events, for example, by the time you finish an investigation, you have to have sufficient evidential material to be able to advise the employer on who ought to be believed when an unwitnessed event is in dispute. Um, the amount of times I see investigators say, well, it's basically he, he said, she said, so I can't make a finding. Well, of course, that's rubbish. Courts and tribunals do that every day of the week. Even on the higher criminal standard, they make um, uh, factual findings on events that aren't necessarily witnessed. So it's those sort of skills that are brought to bear, those sort of forensic legal skills, some very basic legal skills, like being able to tell the difference between what is relevant and what is irrelevant. I think that comes to bear in the approach that we use um, in our investigations. Then, uh, So I've sort of brought that to the investigation's work But then Alison has brought her forensic approach to the collection of information and data and analysis. And I think that combined produces a, we'd like to think, a pretty formidable product. Have you got your hands on my new ebook? It's filled with 80 short, sharp and practical tips to help you firm your foundations, sort your strategy and optimise your operations so that you can modernise your law firm. Get your copy at lucydickens.com.au forward slash ebook. I can see from your explanation how those areas definitely complement each other and it makes sense that you combine the business to bring these two arms together. Yes, and certainly in terms of business as well, it just means that the business is diversified. It means that if for some reason one part of the business model is affected by a downturn in business, then the entire firm doesn't go down. So it makes commercial sense as well. And it frankly just makes life more interesting in terms of just (laughs) work. I have a sort of a short attention span and I like to keep my work very uh, varied 
And it's great to be able to move from strictly legal work. So in any given day, I might be uh, working on the preparation or the analysis of interview material for an investigation. I might then be working on a piece of advice work for a client or preparing um, for a hearing or a conciliation in respect of um, some piece of litigation. And just for me personally, I I like that um, variety. Yeah, me too. I definitely need the variety in my work. And I think for me, that's what keeps me so motivated and engaged is that I'm never doing the same thing for too long. I can move and do something else and can kind of come back to it if I need to. Yeah, yeah. Certainly early in my career, I knew I would not be suited to, you know, say a large scale um, commercial litigation where you work on one case for like seven years and there's a million documents. And I knew I would not be Uh, suited to that sort of work. And I really do love workplace and employment law. It's just a really interesting area of practice. We've spoken a lot about what you do and how you do it. I'm interested in understanding a bit of the behind the scenes. So I know you're completely virtual, your practice, and obviously we've spoken that you work with your wife and I'm sure people will be interested to see how does that play out and what's it like working full time with your partner who you also live with. Um, so tell us a bit about that behind the scenes in terms of the management of the business. Oh, yeah, look, it is a really interesting question and, and I do get asked it a fair bit. Obviously, not every married couple are suited to work together yeah. and that is just a truism <laughs> to the point of cliche. But certainly, um, Alison and I, in terms of our personalities, they're very similar and very different at the same time. And we do really like each other. We get on well together. We tend not to argue. This is all beside, apart from work. So we've got that foundation, which is a good start. Yeah. But in terms of the business, we do bring different personality traits, backgrounds and experience and training to the business. So we tend not to step on each other's toes. And when we first talked about joining in business together, we did have an explicit conversation about, well, who will be responsible for what? And um, apart from the fact that we do, um, in terms of the consulting work, discuss each other's cases all the time and, and have that sort of collegiate support that you would have in an ordinary workplace, apart from that, we do have different responsibilities that we take care of um, primarily in, in the business. So that, I think, stops that potential to be stepping on each other's toes mm-hmm. all the time. And although when you think about it, that's really no difference from any other workplace. If you have managers who have overlapping responsibilities and authority, you eventually going to get disputation. Look, the main thing in terms of, um, obviously, it has the risk of we work at home. We have a separate office which uh, in our home here in West End in Queensland, which we can shut at the end of the day. So it's not we don't work off the kitchen bench or anything. We have a completely separate and dedicated office area that we use. And we have plenty of other areas in the home that we can get to, our alternative work areas and areas we can go to read and that. So we're not in the same room together 24-7. And then, of course, we're, I mean, pre-COVID-19, we're also both in and out a fair bit as well because um, obviously because we are a virtual firm, if we need to meet with our clients or we're doing interviews for investigations or whatever it might be, we go then on site to our clients' offices. Yeah, of so the two of us are in and out a fair bit as well. So we're not just um, sitting on top of each other the entire time. But I think, yes, just going back to the point I was making, 
that clear delineation of responsibilities and tasks within a business certainly has made a big difference to how it has operated for us. But um, yeah, it's going really well. And I, I enjoy working with Alison. And I hope that she would say the same thing about me. <laughs> I'm sure she would. I think it's great. I think it's lovely. And like you say, you've got the foundations of that great relationship to start with, which is really important with a business relationship as well as a personal relationship. But you know, you need to have a have a good relationship with the people who you go into business with. So you know you've already got that from the outset. But then like you say, you've had the conversation around who's responsible for what and you've made those boundaries and really really clear from the get-go. You mentioned COVID-19 and obviously lots of us have been having conversations about the innovations and changes that have come as a result of COVID-19. Have you had to change the way you do anything? I'm guessing you've probably had to change your investigations perhaps to make them them virtual like everybody else, but are there any significant changes to your business? Well, obviously we didn't have the change of having to move home to work because we were already doing that. So that was easy. Probably the biggest impact is in terms of doing the interviews for investigations, we've had to take that online and start Mm -hmm. doing that by video. Um, In the past, uh, we would rarely do an interview that was not face-to-face. There is a great value of undertaking um, interviews face-to-face, particularly in the um, complex investigations that we do partly because you can observe the person giving their evidence, which is of assistance. I mean, admittedly, you can do that by video, but there's also other practical issues like when an investigation is very document heavy, it's, although you can share documents on the various video platforms that are available, it is much easier to simply hand someone a document and say, hey, have a look at that and is that your signature? You know, is, can you authenticate that? Have you seen that before, you know, um, then... Sort of, I find still the video platforms are, are a bit clunky with that. And of course, the other problem we've been having, and I don't think we're alone here, is that the use of these video platforms relies on the quality of the internet service that the users are utilizing. And uh, that combined with the fact that many people are utilizing them from their homes where the quality of internet is not as high as when you're, say, in a CBD office, uh, where it's all been done either by NBN or uh, fibre optic cable, has produced some problems for us. So, for example, we're getting dropouts of videos, which then that's no better than a telephone interview. So, yeah, there have been some issues. They haven't caused us any fatal problems at the moment, but I would expect that going forward, while we will obviously use video interviewing more and more, for the very key investigations and interviews that we're doing, we're still um, examining now um, how we can return to face-to-face interviews as much as possible while obviously maintaining the safety of ourselves and, and the people we're meeting with. That's probably the biggest change we've experienced, yeah, from that. I mean, we certainly had no drop-off in work um, in terms of the legal work. In fact, it's been busier, if anything, because obviously can imagine. inquiries. Yeah. Inquiries arising out of the pandemic and people's responses to that itself. I think your story about the use of video platforms is a really good example of how, I guess, to quell the fear that technology is going to take over and that our practice of law or the businesses that we operate are, you know, going to be no more in the future because technology is going to be able to do it for us. And that example really emphasizes the importance of the human element. Like, yes, we can use a video, video conference to do those kinds of interviews, but it doesn't give the same effect. It doesn't give you the same outcome. Um, And I think that we all need to just 
perhaps be a bit more accepting of that. There's sometimes there's a suggestion that if you can use technology, then you should. But I don't think that that's always the right approach. Yeah, and the use of video, for example, will get better when we, for example, all move to 5G. And by all reports, um, 5G should deliver pretty much seamless video transmission. So that will help, certainly. But that's also universal access to that sort of um, service is, is still a fair way off from what I can mm. gather. But look, yeah, no, in many respects, there is nothing like being with another human being when you're interacting about difficult and sensitive issues. I haven't yet myself um, done a a video mediation, for example, and I have my doubts as to whether that will have the same efficacy, particularly in the, again, the sort of mediation I get called to do is usually when there is really awful entrenched conflict. I don't tend to get pulled in on the early stages. I always get call for mediation work when people can barely stand looking at each other anymore. And so the ability to sit in a room with each other, in each other's presence, particularly with a person you really do not like, apart from the fact it's uncomfortable, I think it actually is really effective in terms of particularly the style of mediation I use, which is a um, essentially called narrative mediation, where it's very much focused, um, future-focused on redrawing the story of conflict that people have found themselves in rather than the usual sort of transactional mediation that a lot of practitioners use. And that, I think, is assisted by being face-to-face with each other in the room. Yeah. And then on the flip side, I mean, I know this is kind of contradicting what I just said, but there are also some examples from COVID where the use of technology in legal situations has been excellent. I mean, I have a colleague who had a mention, he was on a court list for in a court that was about an hour away. So if he'd have shown up in person, it was an hour for him to get there and back, obviously. And he was just on a list. And had he been there in person, he would have sat in the back of the courtroom all day. Most litigation lawyers know exactly what this is like, waiting for his client to be called. Whereas instead, it was all done by phone. And so he could just stay in his office, carry on working on other matters while he waited for the phone to ring. And that is an example of the perfect use of technology. He didn't need to be there in person. The client didn't need to be there. So there's always, I think, a balance, I guess, between what where we can use technology for a good effect and where it's still going to be better for us to be in person. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Look, I think in those sort of procedural yeah. proceedings, uh, there's no doubt about it. Having lawyers sitting around the back of a, a courtroom while 35 or 40 matters are called over is a waste of time and, and clients' money. Yeah. That is a perfect example of where that can be utilised. And certainly even when, with our investigations, from time to time when we have minor witnesses, we'll do them by telephone. And if we can now do them by video, well, then we at least have a face-to-face interview yeah. with the person, which is preferable to um, uh, to telephone, but it, it saves the cost and time of, of having to say, particularly if we're doing one in a regional area where, where it's just not an option to fly back up to Cairns to do uh, two interviews with minor witnesses, that will certainly be preferable, yeah. So what advice, John, would you give to somebody who wants to do law differently? I'd say do it. Um, I, I, uh, commented, I commented on a post the other day. I can't remember whose it was. It was, it was a post generally talking about how law has evolved to where it's just not the case now that the only pathway in a career is, is to become an equity partner in a large firm. I never saw myself as working and 
if you like, selling my soul to a large law firm uh, to one day dream of working as an equity partner. When I was at the Treasury, I used to work on large infrastructure projects for the Queensland Government, and we frequently worked very closely with lawyers that we engaged from you know, the big five or six law firms to underpin the work we were doing. And I've got to say, I don't think I ever met one that was happy. Most of them were completely exhausted. When they brought their senior associates in, they looked even worse because after we finished the day of negotiating, they were going home to t- back to the office till two or three in the morning to do the drafting. So we had it the next day. And I just yeah. looked at that and I thought, that is, I have no interest in that at all. So I went from being an in-house government lawyer with the Treasury Department to self-employment as a consultant, to self-employment as a barrister, to self-employment in my own firm. And I said in this uh, comment, I get to pick my clients, I get to pick what work I do, and I get to keep all of my fees. Um, and why would I do it any other way? <laughs> I know what post you're talking about. It was Sam Burrett from of Plexus, who's actually going to be a guest in an upcoming episode. So listen out for that. But it was his post and it was really interesting. And the comments are interesting too, in terms of people saying, uh, commenting on Sam's comment about the alternative career path and that these days, perhaps it's not something new. And maybe it's just that we're starting to recognise it more. People aren't just graduating from uni and wanting to step on this corporate ladder to become a partner, they're seeing that actually there are lots of different opportunities and that that's not the only one. Oh, yeah. And, and look, particularly these days, and look, this is the same for all, uh, all sorts of businesses, mm. the advent of social media and the internet and the ability to promote your reputation in a way that is still consistent with the dignity of our profession and the uh, restrictions that we have upon us in terms of advertising is just amazing. 10, 15 years ago, you just wouldn't have been able to just go out there and hang out your shingle and really make a go of it quickly um, like you can today. So the advent of social media like LinkedIn, for example, is a fantastic opportunity for people who want to go on their own and sail their own ship that just wouldn't have been there, I would say, 15 years ago, certainly. So your advice then is to just get on with it? That's right. Look, if you're a good practitioner and particularly if you've already got a good reputation, the overheads of running a virtual law firm are extremely low and the flexibility, if that's something that is important to you, um, is extremely high. So as I said, um, I remember when I first left the government to start my consulting business, I was a fairly senior person in government by that stage. And I was thinking about the risk because I had a young family at the stage. I had four children that were growing up and and I had to look at the risk of leaving a safe government job as an in-house lawyer uh, to go on my own. And I did the figures and I realised I had to bill 10 hours a week to replace my salary in the government. And I thought to myself, well, if I can't bill 10 hours a week, I really shouldn't be going out on my own. But I knew I could, so I made the jump. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us, John, and for sharing so much about your business and your journey with, with setting it up and establishing it and everything else. Thank you. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks again for tuning in to Doing Law Differently. If you enjoyed the episode, I'd love you to share it with someone else who you think will love it too. You can find all our past episodes at doinglawdifferently.com.au. Doing Law Differently.